everybody and welcome to the first in our series of podcasts on pensions and diversity. Our aim in these sessions is to explore different aspects of diversity in the pensions industry, both amongst pensions professionals and different organisations, but also to, to discuss and see how it can become a feature of our work. Today I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Dana Gray, Director of Legal Compliance and Ethics at the Pension Protection Fund. Dana joined the PPF from private practice in 2009 before becoming head of legal in 2013. And I, my recollection is that when she was in private practice, our paths certainly crossed. So it's a delight to have her on today. Welcome, Dana. Thank you. Lovely to be here. Um, I'm going to start, if I may, by asking you to tell us a bit about yourself and your background and how you came to your current role, because it's not entirely <laughs> standard. No, no, um, but very enriching. Um, so oh, how far back shall I go? Uh, I was born and bred in Croydon. And um, for those who know, the Pension Protection Fund is based in Croydon. So I have come full circle um, from those very early days a long, long time ago. Um, I am the child of immigrants. Um, who incidentally met in Croydon, uh, so Croydon holds <laughs> I hold a very soft spot for Croydon, as, as many people who know me will, will know. Um, so my my parents are both from Mauritius. Um, that, as I say, they're, they're both immigrants, obviously, to the UK. Um, my childhood was very happy, um, very happy childhood. Um, surrounded by lots and lots of different cultures, um, not only because of who my parents were and all of their friends um, and relatives, um, but also growing up where, where I grew up as a very diverse community. Um, lots of lots of immigrants flocked to Croydon and, and lived there. So I've got a very happy childhood. I, I don't think I experienced or knowingly experienced a huge amount of discrimination, although there was always something, you know, in the background that, that you can sense um, here and there, um, but generally happy and fulfilled. Um, so my parents worked really hard. They had that real sort of immigrant work ethic, you know, work really, really hard, do as many jobs as you can, create opportunities um, for your children. I So I was sent to a very good private school. Um, in Croydon, uh, you guessed right, um, uh, and I struggle a bit, you know, when people talk about social mobility being the difference between sort of private and state school, I, I'm in a lot of conversations around social mobility, um, and it's more than that. Um, I, I would still say that I'm from a working class background. My parents eventually came to own their own businesses, um, but I'm very much from a working class background, but I was lucky enough to have that opportunity. So. It's not really, you know, social mobility um, and, and social progression isn't just about state versus private. It's it's about the privileges that you have access to. And that is the case, I think, with everything to do with diversity and inclusion. Um, so I qualified as a lawyer a long time ago, too long uh, to remember. Um, I was in private practice, as you say, until 2009 when I joined the PPF. So I qualified as a pensions lawyer, which is how our paths crossed and how I came to be at the PPF. Um, but I didn't join the legal team. I joined the operations side of the business. 
And actually, that gave me a really, really good outlook to the whole business. Um, and I would recommend it for any budding lawyers out there. If you can do a stint uh, on the operational side of any business, it absolutely opens your eyes to exactly how your your advice um, fits into the broader scheme of things. So. I did that. I was there for six months um, and asked to head up a team to support the operational side of the business. Um, and then after four years at the PPF, I moved into the head of legal position. Um, after three years doing that, I established the compliance and ethics function um, and now head up both legal compliance and ethics. So I've, I've been at the PPF a really long time, um, but I've got to say, I've never looked back, you know, I've been there 11 years and it's been one of the most enriching um, experiences that I've ever had um, and I've got a lot to be grateful for. It is a fascinating background and, and what you say about um, your your parents and your, your upbringing um, and the, the role that you think that plays around things like social mobility I think is, is really interesting because so often we do hear and we, we measure things based on private versus public mm -hmm. or state versus state versus private um just just um picking up something that you said about access to i think you, you talked about sort of access to privilege or access to opportunity yeah um is that something that um in your role you have um the opportunity to help the the ppf to provide to other people do you you know how, how do you um look at opportunity when for example when you're recruiting or um, when you're setting up, you know, social mobility um, initiatives. Um, so we've got a number of strands actually in our diversity and inclusion strategy, um, and we're currently focused specifically on three areas. Although we've got um, employee network groups uh, across a broad range of issues, and mm -hmm. the three that we're currently focused on as an organisation are um, race, gender, and disability. Um, that's not to say social mobility is off the table. Um, in fact, we could get into a whole conversation about intersectionality now. Indeed. <laughs> um, so, so, so I would say at the moment we don't specifically focus on social mobility, but it's in it's in the backs of our minds. So when we talk about um, the progression of women, when we talk about the progression of ethnic minorities, we're, we're thinking about how can we tap into um, those those kids who wouldn't normally have access to the opportunities that some children might might otherwise have. How can we how can we, you know, kind of improve that pipeline? Yeah. And we do all kinds of things. You know, you you, you mentioned um, the recruitment, um, uh, you know, the recruitment aspect of things. We we recently did a wholesale review of our of the whole of our recruitment um, process, starting from um, the, you know when an advert goes out, how that advert is drafted how it how it's put together um all the way through to onboarding people and then how they're you know what their experience is like once they're here um and around the edges of that as well are how do you get opportunities out to those who might not necessarily you know tread the normal path um, into our organization our organization 
is full of professionals. We've got lawyers, actuaries, you know, investment um, professionals, accountants, you name it. We've got the professional in there to do it. So we we signed up to um, the apprenticeship scheme, the government's apprenticeship scheme, um, a few years ago now. Um, and I think apprentice, apprentice, the word apprentice evokes all kinds of connotations. Um, you know, people sort of think of you know, plumbers and electricians, yeah. but actually there's a real untapped wealth of talent out there that you can access through apprenticeship schemes. Um, we partner with Croydon College um, to provide the, the training that um, people might need, um, the, which you can get through the apprenticeship scheme um, mm -hmm. in itself. And we've got lots of success, success stories already um, in the organisation, you know, just in, in my compliance team alone, we've got um, a compliance analyst that uh, has joined uh, had joined our team as an apprentice and, and recently, you know, completed the apprenticeship program. Um, there, there are apprentices across the organisation and it really just opens up those opportunities that we were talking about. Mm, and I think, um, as you say, your organisation, like like ours, is you know, full of professionals. Um, and you know, yours, yours is uh, you have more diverse professionals than we do. But um, I, I think one of the things that um, professionals can miss out on when we're all sort of in a room together is a tendency to, you know, we also in a way are trained to think the same. Yeah. And when we have people who've come through into organisations um, through different routes, you, you get a great richness of, of thought and um and input that I think otherwise we perhaps don't get as much of. Um, yeah. And there's so much, obviously, research that shows that organisations which encourage diversity of thought, um, you know, have very successful outputs or very successful outcomes. Um, so it can only be a good thing. I yes. Think. Yeah, very much so. Agree just that. to pick up on something you said at the beginning there about intersectionality, mm -hmm. um, because this is something that, that we struggle with a lot. A, particularly around racial diversity and inclusion, is this um, tendency that there can be to sandwich together um, what we call or what we, you know, what, what we in the UK refer to repeatedly as BAME. Yes. And um, people from lower social, um, social economic background. Yes. And we, we, we can tend to have a um, you know, a, a tendency to say, well, you know, so if we tackle one, we're tackling the other. Yeah. Um, and I've spoken to, you know, a number of people, um, not so, not from Mauritian backgrounds, I have to say, but a, a number from, from Indian um, backgrounds who have said they just, you know, actually for them, it, it that is not a, a correlation that they recognise. No. Um, and, and I, in fact, heard a, somebody from a... Um, from one of the consultancies, management consultancies, saying that they don't use the phrase BAME and they have a US parent and they use the phrase RED, meaning oh, right. racial, well, they call, they call it race, racial and ethnic diversity. Right. Which I think is quite, quite helpful in helping to focus the minds on the fact that we're not, we shouldn't automatically correlate the two things. Albeit that, as you say, there is it's, there is significant intersectionality, but it's not always you know it's not it's not a foregone conclusion. No, I, I think that's exactly right. I think you've sort of touched on two things there. One is lazy thinking, 
Yeah. <laughs> Is it, I think, language. Know, in a, yeah, in a, in a nutshell, you know, it's sort of if I can, I've I've heard people say, look, you know, if we if we if we fix the problem here, um, you know, in relation to race and ethnicity, we, you know, you're kind of fixing the social mobility side of things mm -hmm. as well. That's not true at all, is it? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, then you are sort of sidelining anyone from a white working class background um, and, and that richness uh, of thought mm -hmm. as well. So I think it's, you know, it, it's, as I said, you can't do everything all at once. It's really, really hard. And if you try and spread yourself too thin, then nothing will be accomplished, which is why I think you find that organizations focus on kind of one, two, three things um, that are kind of more easily accessible mm -hmm. and easier to talk about. Yeah. But then that brings us on to actually uh, another point, um, which which comes up through some of what you've just said, which is kind of what what do you you know, what language do you use um, mm -hmm. and how can you make sure the mm -hmm. conversation um, still moves? So when we when we set up um, our internal um, uh, uh, network for, you know, to talk about ethnic diversity and race issues, um, one that our very first conversation was, you know, how do you like to be referred to? We sort of threw yeah. that out there and lots of different thoughts. And, you know, I said, do you, are you are you offended if somebody calls you black? Are you offended if somebody calls you Asian? How do you, you know, what, what mm. do you think? And um, we had a really, really good discussion. And actually, the, the bottom line is people just want this subject to be talked about. Yeah. So I'm personally less worried about whether I'm referred to as BAME, Asian, brown, um, mm -hmm. you know, than if the conversation is just happening. Um, and of course, I, you know, I say that sort of fairly lightheartedly. Obviously, I, you know, I kind of, there's intention behind some of the, the yeah. these phraseologies. Um, but broadly, I know when somebody is trying to have a conversation and just tripping over the language yeah um, and I think I am responsible for ensuring that that conversation still happens how I respond to that will mean whether somebody in a position of power who is white and an ally decides to continue having that conversation or not um, and I think it's my responsibility because I want you know the world to be a different place for my children mm. um, to allow that conversation to happen that doesn't mean that I'll let somebody speak to me in any way that they like um, yeah, no. you know me well enough to know that, that that's not going to happen but that it means that we can all be we we can all benefit from being just a little bit tolerant of the conversation that people are trying to have I think that's really generous of you Tana because um you know as someone who I would identify as a white ally I find finding the right language very difficult mm. um and it has taken me you know I've sort of had to just bite the bullet and, and ask people before, you know, ha, you know, how should I refer to 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 your skin color, or um, you know, in you in your culture, is it appropriate for me to say X, Y, and Z, or do X, Y, and Z? And nine times out of ten, the response is entirely welcoming and um, grateful, you know, grateful that I've asked. Um, but for some reason, we've built up this fear, I think, of, of yes. having having any conversation. Yes. Um, actually, that d does bring me on to, though, an another point that um, I'd be interested in your views on, particularly given that you said that Croydon was so di racially diverse growing up. I've heard some people say that um, there's so much organisational focus on race at the moment 
and they are being asked to you know be the face of recruitment campaigns and and you know yeah. participate in panels and so on a, a bit like i suppose we probably were as women yes five or six years ago absolutely and they're saying well actually all this focus is making me feel othered in a way that i never have growing up you know i grew up in a very diverse background um i, I you know i didn't as you have said i didn't really face um, obstacles due to my race when I was growing up and now there's all this focus and I'm being made to feel different does that resonate with you at all or something you've heard other people say I've definitely heard people say that yes um, in fact we were just having a conversation um, a couple of weeks ago um, uh, about sort of diversity and inclusion internally and 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 something around that came up look for, for me personally um, I've I've not felt it myself through, mm. you know, the current focus on race um, and the conversations about race in organisations. You know, I'm I am just happy that we are having conversations yeah. about this and that we are driving the agenda forward and that we are, you know, having a few uncomfortable conversations, but really kind of slowly trying to shift that dial. Mm -hmm. You know, in terms of thinking. Um, you know, for me at the moment, actually, I'm noticing my difference more because of the way that we're working and I'm looking my, at myself on a screen um, in a way, you know, like normally you're sat in a room and, and you don't really notice. But, you know, that's, we've, we've flipped everything onto Zoom and Teams and, and, and Skype and whatever. And, and I can, you know, I can really see the difference there. Um, but I certainly feel I, can, I feel a sense of pressure. I would say, yeah, rather than feeling others, you know, I do feel that sort of when I'm speaking, um, you know, I'm speaking almost on behalf of every woman of colour. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. uh, certainly, you know, from from within our organisation, and I would not dare to try and pretend to think that I know the inner thinkings of all my, you know, colleagues who are um, women of colour. Yeah. Or, or men of colour as well. Mm. Um, but I, you know, there is only me at the senior level um, in the organisation um, who is from a minority ethnic background. And so I do feel a certain sense of I'm, I'm sort of talking on behalf of, of a lot of people. But I therefore also feel that sense of pressure that I, you know, a real responsibility that I really need to do something um, mm. uh, about that. Um, but actually, you know, but at the PPF, I'm really pushing on an open door there in terms yeah. of what people want to do, which is which is wonderful to hear. I think um, it, certainly um, from discussions we've had in the past, it it seems that you know you are as an organisation. Well, I suppose you are young, but as an organisation, yeah. you are so open to um, uh, to diversity and, and inclusion and inclusion within you know in its broadest sense. I think. Yeah. Um, that sort of brings me on to actually, you know, now we've talked specifically about the PPF and you've talked a bit about your, um, you know, the programmes you have there or the, the organisational structures you have in place. Um, I've also heard you talk um, in other um, contexts about um, the way in which organisational diversity um, is important to you as investors when yes. you come to make investment decisions so so i suppose if we think about the esg ad agenda i suppose diversity organizational diversity perhaps falls into the probably the g bucket the governance or maybe yeah 
yeah I think with you yeah right. definitely um, yeah can you just share that I, I found that really interesting concept when you first raised it could you just share some thoughts on that so our listeners can understand that a bit better yeah I think so we've we have quite uh well ESG certainly been on our agenda since we were set up um we've we've had a strong focus on that um in everything we do through the in through our investment strategies it's it's built into that you know and we've got a prime position um as a large asset owner um in the pension space in fact the whole of the pensions industry you know if you take all pension schemes together we we hold a huge amount of trillions of pounds mm-hmm. worth of assets mm-hmm. um and therefore have kind of significant sway here we've got a real opportunity to kind of push that diversity and inclusion agenda because we've got a lot of buying power and really you know that's the bottom line isn't it you know for for a lot of organizations for a lot of businesses it you know it's what's the bottom line um people want to do the right thing but it's also got to balance with you know kind of their own objectives um for their businesses so we've got we have minimum esg requirements um that fund managers must meet um we we have elevated our expectations on stewardship um um and esg engagement and we try and feed that through to um voting rights as well um and uh, increasing board diversity and engagement so it's it's something that we expect we've made choices based on esg i think i've said this in the past mm-hmm. to you sam that we've you know when we're looking at fund managers we've made um we've made specific decisions around ESG strategies and ESG factors you know we really mean it when we say it um and i think in a later podcast we're going to have our head of ESG speaking to mm-hmm. about this um and 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 again you know we've got a specific head of ESG we have you know a team focused on this it's it is a strategic objective for the organization now i think because we've we've really got something to say here in this area I love that. I love the fact that you've got buying power and you're using it to try and um, influence change. Um, yeah. And it's not just, and I don't mean this in a belittling way, we talk about and hear about climate change all the time in this space. Yeah. Um, but hearing an organisation talk more broadly about you know, the importance of steward- stewardship and board diversity is so refreshing. Um, and I suppose you do have the freedom to do that in a way that you know a lot of certainly defined benefit pension scheme trustees may still feel hampered by um but but it's so refreshing therefore to hear an organization and a young organization coming out and saying look we're going to do it we're effectively putting our money where our mouth is yeah Um, definitely on the on the other side of um your organization so on the one side as you say you're a um a very significant asset owner um on the other the other side and really your fundamental purpose um is to provide um, pensions or compensation to your many, many members. Um, I think you now have over 270,000 members. Yes, Um, and counting. And counting. (laughs) Um, And I think um, one thing that we hear a lot of and and a lot of chatter around the pensions dashboard and so on, but Mm. we hear a lot about the importance of raising participation and engagement in pensions. Um, And I think that means understanding and being able to engage with a broad range of people from so many different backgrounds, both 
cultural backgrounds, financial backgrounds, different education levels, etc. Um, and the PPF seems to be constantly winning praise and <laughs> prizes for its stakeholder engagement. Do you think there's anything that the industry or something that the industry could learn generally from how you tackle engagement um, um, to help us? Yeah, well, um, I can tell you what we do. <laughs> so we we definitely encourage we encourage people to use the channel of communication that best suits their needs. Um, so we've got lots of different um, forms of communication, just just like any other business. Um, but we really try and listen to people in terms of what what helps them. So uh, you know, we use <clears throat> we can use email. We've got a sort of self serve um, uh, aspect um, that people can use as well. We use post, um, and and we're constantly speaking to the members and asking them kind of what would they find useful. Our our director of member services has recently launched a members forum where she seeks um, the first, you know she, she wants to get that first hand experience of the issues mm -hmm. that people face. So she's she's really really keen to listen to to what will help people. Um, we also make sure um, communication is accessible. So we use Relay, which is the service um, for the hard of hearing. We also allow our contact centre advisors to speak with someone on behalf of the member if mm -hmm. they identify as vulnerable and they can give us a verbal authority to discuss their their query with a family member so they don't have to go through lots of form filling at a time where they're not feeling really sure mm. um, you know on <clears throat> gen when when people change gender you know there's a whole host of um, documentation that you know some organizations can ask well we, we've, we've simplified that approach as well and we don't you know we, we try not to go through kind of the sort of documentation that you wouldn't even need to to apply for a passport for. Yeah. So we try and make things as accessible as possible. And then we the other part is we get people to engage in is using plain language in our letters and booklets. You know, mm -hmm. we we post videos and guides on social media as well, you know. Um and that's just continuing to grow. So we're sort of trying to do everything. Try 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 yeah. and and I think that's what you have to do, you, you know, because as it comes back to that. The members are from a diverse range of of backgrounds and experiences. Pensions is hard, yeah. and pensions is boring. Um, yeah. So, kind of to get people engaged, you kind of, you know, don't 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 have this barrier that is just complete technical jargon because mm -hmm. it's going to switch people off anyway. Mm -hmm. it, you know, try to make it as accessible within the language as possible. Yeah. I, th I think that's that's right. That and particularly that point about um, you know allowing them to communicate with you in the way that best suits them. Um, but I think you know I was going to say our generation, perhaps the generation slightly below us, um, <laughs> you know, are so used and just want to do everything online all the time. Yeah, I'm still very much of the paper must print stuff out generation. And then you know, yeah. think about my parents who can do stuff online but aren't that comfortable with it, would probably prefer to speak to somebody. And I, I suppose I, I hadn't thought about that angle about actually by by being a broad or offering a broad range of options, you are being inclusive. Yes. Um, because the, the corollary is if you don't, you are by definition ex going to exclude people. Yeah, absolutely. And we could, you know, it would be really easy for us not to because yep. 
people don't have to choose you know people can't choose another ppf we are the only one but yeah. it's really important to us that people get the right experience you know that that top mm. level experience and as you say you know we we, we win awards for yeah. um the customer service experience that that people um ex you know that they get from the ppf um and a lot of that is to do with how they are engaged with in fact didn't sarah prothero receive an award in the queen's she did she was made an obe Yes. yes, for her services um, to the pensions industry, um, which, you know, we're all incredibly proud of and all take, you know, we're all sort of a little bit secretly like that's a bit of a bit, bit of us as well. But of course, it's all Sarah. <laughs> um, um, but uh, yeah, really, really proud, um, proud for her. for that. Excellent. Well, we're coming close to finishing. I'm just going to ask you one um, one last question, which is perhaps a that's a little unfair, but um, you know, you are a a well-known figure in the pensions industry. Lots of Google hits when I look for you. <laughs> you are obviously a woman, a working mother. Um, as you've said, you come from um, a Mauritian uh, ethnic background. Grew up in Croydon. Um, you have risen to you know very senior role. Do you think that you are or might be seen as a role model? And, and if so, how do you feel about that? Um, <laughs> um, I sort of laugh, but actually, and if you ask my girls, they'd say, don't be ridiculous, you know. <laughs> Why would anybody look up to her? Um, uh, I... I guess I am, you know, I, I you know, I, I shouldn't be too jovial about it. Um, and I think it's, it's kind of my duty to be, I think. Um, I'm not going to be around forever and when I eventually move on either from the PPF or you know kind of f finish working and draw yeah. my very hefty pension um, <laughs> as if, um, I want to have made a difference um, I've got a real opportunity to do that as you say in the position that I'm in in fact something really struck me um, as we were sort of embarking on setting out you know and, and producing our first DNI strategy and really formalizing um, our work around this and it was somebody um, a, a bit more junior to me saying you know there's only one there's only one um, person of color um, that I can look to at the senior levels and I, and I was like oh yeah who's that and they you uh, and I was like, oh yes of course yes that's me you know and and you sort of forget that and and that sat with me for a while and I thought yeah you know I've I've got to do the right thing here um, and I've got to make this a better place so that when your girls come through yeah absolutely absolutely exactly well I think they've got a superb role model at home we oh, think they thanks. do can um, you tell them that please <laughs> you'll have them listening to this podcast obviously yeah of course absolutely <laughs> Well, thank you, Dana. That brings us to the end of the podcast. Um, but thank you so much for joining and, and, you know, really engaging so openly in a really interesting conversation. Um, for everyone who listened, thank you for, for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Um, and do join us for further episodes. Um, apparently, you can do that by subscribing to our channel, which is available on Spotify, iTunes and SoundCloud. Or just drop me or your usual contact an email and we can add you to the list. Thank you very much indeed. And thank, thank you again, Dana. <laughs>